Welcome to the Redemption Church Podcast, located in Seattle, Washington. As a church, we are a community striving to be faithfully present to God, self, and others. We hope this is an encouragement to you in your life, no matter where you are. Thanks for joining us. It's good to be with you guys this morning. I feel like the fall weather is kind of back. Yeah. There's, yeah, listen, listen, listen. No booze, no booze. There's a reason we live in Seattle. You had an opportunity to live somewhere else if you wanted. I'm, I'm, uh, I love this place. Uh, and I feel a little more at home when it's, you know, 60-something degrees and cloudy. Don't worry, you'll have a great week. It's supposed to be in the low 70s. Uh, you know, the meteorology report will be done here in a moment. Um, but let's jump back into Hebrews. Um, Lisa, thank you for reading all of Hebrews 9. Uh, Alex and I looked at this a few different ways as to how we might break up Hebrews 9. And it's like, man, it really does make sense as a whole. So we're going to preach 28 verses this morning. And I, I promise I will not reread it. Because as, as good as you guys were about holding your attention there, I'm not going to test the waters, I promise. Um, the book of Hebrews in general, I've said this each week that I've preached, and, and Alex has emphasized it as well. The, the primary argument of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. It starts off with an argument that Jesus is better than the angels. We see that Jesus is a better version of what it is to be human. We see that Jesus is better than Moses. We see all these different ways that Jesus is better. And this, we're in the middle of three chapters, 8, 9, and 10 which are making the argument that Jesus is better because he's a better sacrifice. Because he's a better sacrifice. And so this morning we're going to see that because of his sacrifice, because of his better sacrifice, Jesus is better because he's brought us into the full presence of God. And, and I want to emphasize full because I think it's important. I, I worked through this. Uh, I've been working on this for the last couple of weeks, trying to figure out where I would hit it. And I, I had doodled in my margin that there's these two verses that discuss the conscience in verse 9 and in verse 14. And I started talking with Alex this week, and I started talking with Megan Bogato this week, um, who knows lots of things about the conscience. She had a book for me. Um, I promise I'll summarize it for you, but I realized that really is the crux of the passage. That really is what makes Jesus' sacrifice, or one of the key things that makes it so much better. And so I want to get into that, but I wouldn't do justice to Hebrews 9 if I didn't bother to at least walk through it really quick and summarize. Like I said, I won't read it, but, but I think it's worth working through. What, what is the author attempting to do? If we, if we outline what he's getting at, um, you'll see that he, he, he starts the chapter off by looking at the old sacrificial system. The, the ritualistic system, the, he, he goes over the architecture plans um, in, in short detail of, of how you would set up the two tents and where the Holy of Holies would be set and who operates in which area. You have, you have certain priests that can work in the first tent, but they could never quite enter the Holy of Holies. And then you have this one guy, once a, once a year, he's the, the high priest who is able to enter into the Holy of Holies. And he's able to do that because he sacrifices two animals in the process. There's blood that's shed. And it shows us that this, this is the system that God had given the people of Israel to help try to explain some of what was going on with their sin. 
He has to use an external factor. And so we have all this system of, of clean and unclean, of what is defiled and what's not. And, and it deals with food and, and following certain ritual to make sure that you were clean, that you might be able to enter into the presence of God. At least this one guy that could. Uh, the, the high priest that could one time a year. And so you can see already why the system's a wee bit lacking. At least as, as, as for how, how we would bring all of God's people back into God's presence. Our author is then contrasting what Jesus does. Jesus comes in, he, he's, he's better because he not only fulfills the old system, but he overhauls the old system. He, and he's able to bring us into the full presence of God. Then he, then he continues in verse 15, he goes into legal wills that have to occur with, that have to have death in order to inaugurate them. That, that there's, there's bloodshed that's inaugurating these things. All of this requires blood. And he says that even the old covenant required blood, and so certainly the new covenant would require blood. And it says in verse 22, that without the shedding of blood, there's to be no forgiveness of sins. Okay, last part. He contrasts the location and the permanence of it. He says that you have these temporary tents that literally when, when the people, when, when God would tabernacle with them, to use that as a verb, when, when God would be present with the people of Israel, it started off as a series of tents. Eventually, you, you had these temples which were arranged uh, in, in the same manner. But, but these are mere copies, as Lisa read. They're mere copies of what's happening in heaven. Copies that allow us to, to approach God. But Jesus enters into heaven itself. His blood is shed. He dies on the cross. And he doesn't go into the Holy of Holies to be with God. He ends up in heaven itself. Not, not a mere copy of it. And we find out that this isn't just something that he'll do annually. But that his death was so perfect and so worthy of, of, of the Father that it only needs to occur one time, not something that happens on an annual basis. All right, real quick biblical theology. Um, when, when we study scripture, it is good to be able to trace an idea through the totality of scripture. How do you start in Genesis 1 and get to Revelation 22? And, and where does an idea go through? And so when we think of what is it to be in the presence of God? If you take the first two, part of chapter three of Genesis, you see that you have Adam and Eve walking in the garden with God. It literally, it says in Genesis three that, that God was, was walking in the cool of the day, meaning that God could be physically present among a sinless people. Adam and Eve not yet biting apples. Uh, were, God, and so God is able to dwell alongside with them. And they're in perfect harmony perfect peace with God, and they can be present with him, both emotionally and physically, nothing to be ashamed of. They can be fully present with God. But of course they do sin. And so the result of their sin is that God takes them to the eastern entrance of the Garden of Eden, and he kicks them out. And he sets up angels, and he sets up a flaming sword. I mean, way to make a point. A flaming sword. He sets up a flaming sword out there, and it's, it's one of those, like, you shall not pass type of moments. They cannot come back into the garden. They cannot be in the presence of God 
Because their sin has done what? Well, it's distanced them. And so not only will it distance them in, in sort of an emotional relationship, just from a relational standpoint, but now they can't be physically present with God either because of their sin. And so when God chooses Israel as his people, he realizes that there's got to be some way that he can be present with them. But how, how does a holy God be present with a sinful people? This is like oil and water that are not intended to mix. And so he comes up with this system, and that's what the author of Hebrews is getting into. It's like, hey, this is what we've got. We're, we need this ritualistic means of understanding defilement and understanding how we can be considered clean before God so that this one guy can go in and, and be present with God once a year. And, and this guy was under a ton of pressure, tons of pressure. The Jewish tradition holds that they would tie a rope to this guy. And they would put bells on his tassels. Because if the bells stopped ringing, he probably screwed something up. He probably screwed something up. And probably screwed something up in the presence of God means that his life was snuffed out. And nobody wants to go in there, so we've got this rope. And Jewish tradition says that they'd be able to pull him out. That they'd be able to pull him out of the Holy of Holies. Sinful people cannot be in the presence of God, at least under this. But then we come to the inauguration of the new covenant, right? Jesus dies on the cross. What happens when he dies? I mean, lots of things happen, right? But, but one of the main, what happens is it, is it pertains to the presence of God. What happens to the temple curtain? It is slit in two. What, what previously held back the Holy of Holies what, 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 what drew distinction between inside and outside, all of a sudden we've got access of God, access directly to God, and it's not through a priest. It's not through a high priest either. It's not through your pastor. But, but because of Christ's work, you can have direct access to God. That's incredible. That's a, that's a, huge, that's a huge shift. Where are we going, though? Because... If God's creation in the beginning, when he looked at that, he looked at what he had created, the, the, the beauty of the world and the universe and the heavens, and he made people in his own image that they might mirror and reflect him. Where are we going with this? He said that was good. And so where we're going with this is, is we're, we're going right back there. That those who have chosen to follow Christ that have accepted his invitation to be in relationship with him, that in the end, God allows those who don't want to be with him. He doesn't force them into relationship. He, he allows them to maintain that separation for eternity. But they're able to maintain that, that, that separation and be away from God. And those who have chosen to be with God, who've chosen to accept Christ's invitation, can be with God. No more tears, no more disease, perfect creation, dwelling with God as he intended for us. That's where we're going, to a place where we'd be present with God, physically present with God, not just on a cloud somewhere or, or some imaginary soul that is formless. No, physically with God. It's incredible. Okay, back to Hebrews. 
it's, it's always good to see where you're at. And, and now, now let's see the argument that he's making. And, then, and again, the, the crux, I think, of the whole argument that he's making is this bit about conscience. So I want to reread that one part to you. It's in verse 9, if you're following along. This is the second part of verse 9. He says this. He says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. What's that about? But deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not the one made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered into the once and for all the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Uh, like I said, I, I had the in the margins of my notes for a while, but I was like, I gotta deal with that. Why does he talk twice about whether or not our conscience is purified? I mean, it, admittedly, like, having spent time in seminary and, and heard other folks preach and, and studied scripture, I've always thought of this as a legal transaction. And I think with the, the, the comments on conscience show is that not only is this a legal transaction, where those of you who are guilty, your sinners, are acquitted in effect because of the work of Christ. He advocates for you, similar to how an attorney might advocate for you, on your behalf. He takes your place as your substitute. And from a legal standpoint, you're washed clean. But I think what the conversation on a conscience gets to is that it goes down to a much deeper level. What? I mean, look what it says here. Verse 9. It's saying that the arrangement of the Old Covenant cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. It means literally it cannot remove the blemish from or it cannot make complete one's conscience. And then in verse 13, he says, how much more will the blood of Christ purify our conscience? Again, literally to cleanse or to purge our conscience. If God no longer judges you, your eternal, your internal, not eternal, your internal judge needs to be able to stop as well. It is incredibly difficult to be in relationship with someone. You can, you can be physically present with someone, but internally not in a good spot. I mean, think of, think of someone you dated in college that it didn't end so well. You could be physically present in the same room with them. And yet, it's, it's not comfortable. It, it doesn't feel great unless it's been reconciled. You know, those types of things, right? I mean, all these people that you could be with. And, and what he's saying is that you, yeah, it's possible that you could be physically present with God, that you would have access to him, and yet you wouldn't feel comfortable in that. That there'd still be this awkwardness of what he had to do to draw you in. 
look at conscience real quick, because I think that'll help us understand it. When I started talking to Megan Falgado about this this week, um, I mean, like you said, she we filled a whiteboard <laughs> full of stuff. She had so much to say about your conscience. And I always just thought it was like that internal dialogue that tells you what's right, what's wrong in this whole thing. And, and that is all true, but that, that's a bit reductionistic. Your conscience is complex. It, it is your, the judge over your will. It, 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 is, it helps you take a taught moral code that tells you right and wrong. It gives you an understanding of that in the moment, of what I'm doing is okay or what I'm doing is not okay. It helps you kind of guide you through life. And there's emotional response that's associated with it. You can, uh, as a result of it, you can experience sadness or, or, or guilt or certainly shame can be associated with your conscience. It's, it's associated with something that you do wrong. When you, when you exceed the boundaries of that, you're not gonna feel very good. But there's also memory attached to it. That your past experiences are going to dictate what it is to go through a new experience or a new situation. Especially in the context of relationship. Your conscience is gonna dictate how present you're able to be. Um, I want to use an illustration to help you out. You can close your eyes if you want. I don't know if you're that kind of illustration person. But, but I want you to imagine yourself as a 10-year-old. Some of you are 10. And so, yeah, yeah, she's pointing her out. She is 10. You know exactly how you feel right now. But for the rest of us who are not 10, imagine yourself as a little kid, real quick. And you throw a baseball through a window. You do something like this, something that is going to irk your father. Um, what is running through your head in that moment? You just destroyed something. You know you're guilty of this. You have no way of paying for it. You have no way of making it right. You're, you're going to have to deal with someone else. What are you feeling in that moment? So much of this does have to do, what you're thinking right now, so much of that has to do with your experience with your parents. I don't mean to, I don't mean to levy a heavy weight on parents, but, but it is something we, we really do need to be cognizant of. How our kids experience discipline will often dictate how they experience discipline from God. That the, the, their experience with you will dictate their experience later. And dad's response in this case is going to dictate a ton about what it'll look like in the future. Has he been short with you? Is this the kind of dad who comes alongside and says, you know what? When I was 11, I did the exact same thing. I know exactly how you feel. I've totally been there with you. Um, windows aren't cheap, man. But look, let's, let's put this together ourselves. Like maybe we've got a project coming up and this is gonna cost some money. There's cost to that, we gotta be more careful. I, I, want you to be, uh, I want you to be aware of that. Or is he the kind of dad who talks down to his son or his daughter? He says, what were you thinking? You got all kinds of room to play baseball, but you decided to play baseball right near the house? What are you doing? And the shame and the fear that the kid feels is just amplified by the one who's disciplining him. What has happened to the relationship there? 
Contrast the two dads. One has got a weekend project with his son, and the other one has just created a lot of emotional distance with his kid. One has added shame and fear and not created a, a safe space, and the other one has shown love and compassion. He's seeking to restore the relationship. Oh man, you thought this would drive us apart? No, let's, let's find a means to bring you back. Jesus loves you so much. God loves you so much. He doesn't seek to punish you. He seeks to restore you in relationship. He knows what it is to be tempted. He does not know what it is to fail. But he knows that you know what it is to fail. And the last thing he wants to do, when you approach God, your conscience has been used not for condemnation, but for conviction, to, to align yourself with, with what God understands as good. That, that, that your, your conviction would help you understand what's healthy for you. And so your conscience is not a bad thing. But in our, in our experience with God in conviction, it brings us to a place where we're restored back to God, where we're brought closer to God through our discipline, not distanced, not shamed. Christian, if you feel shame about your past, if you feel guilty about something you did, Jesus is not, Jesus is not a God of cancel culture who is constantly looking back on your past, looking up to dig something you tweeted or something you did, something you screwed up that will identify you. He gives you a new identity. He stands as your substitute. Jesus is the better sacrifice because he is your substitute, who not only gives you access, physical access to God, but he can also clean up your emotional access to God, how you relate to him. Do you feel comfortable? Do you feel his compassion? He desperately wants to draw you in and not just draw you in so that you might feel awkward we have an illustration that we put up here sometimes that shows a child reaching out to the hands of God. And that, that's how he talks about you. He puts you in this father-child language, this language of adoption, that you would understand that he's a dad that cares about you, that wants what's best for you. And so he disciplines to bring you in. But when a child approaches a safe father, he does so with expectation of love not of fear. Through Jesus' work on the cross, through his sacrifice, no longer did people need to approach in fear and in shame from their past, but their conscience is made clean. Finally, their conscience is perfected in the work of the gospel. Do you know God looks at you like that? That if you've accepted your salvation in him, that Jesus looks at you like that. He's not ashamed to call you his son. But he brings you in. Look at how Jesus describes. Uh, if you go back to the prodigal son, that's such a beautiful image. When the son comes home, the one who's gone off, and he's lived this reckless life, and he's been with the pigs, and, and he knows he's completely screwed up. And yet when he comes in, and his father, who's been looking for him the whole time, his father sees him coming, 
off in the distance, and he runs out after him. He can't wait to welcome him home. That is how Jesus, the one who died for you, describes his relationship with you. He didn't go out there to find an account of all the things that he had done wrong. He went out to bring them in. He went out to make sure that he felt like he was part of the family, that he felt like he could be there without shame, that he was fully accepted, fully wanted. Man, I'll tell you what, I don't think I had an image of Revelation 22 quite in that way. Yeah, I, I could imagine myself maybe being in God's presence, but at a distance. And yet he's saying, no, no, no. That's not how I brought you in. I brought you fully in. Fully present. Because of this work. The old covenant could never do that, but Jesus most certainly has. That he would bring you into that. If your internal dialogue is not there quite yet, if you feel shame when you think uh, you, you think through what you've done and you feel that shame and and um, and it's just it's abusing you it's causing anxiety it's doing all of those things I need you to know that that does not come from Jesus that might come from your colleagues and your friends it might come from your past experience with your parents it might come from something demonic but it does not come from Jesus and Jesus welcomes you in and he's so affectionately desirous of you that he was willing to die for you. That he was willing to go to suffer the cross, to provide the blood that would inaugurate this covenant where you could be brought fully in. Deep breath. That feels good, doesn't it? That feels so good. What an image of God that, that, he, brings you, that he brings you into his presence like that. Um, I want to invite Lisa up. I think she's if I have this right, yeah, I'm inviting you up, Lisa. You're coming back. Um, and she, she's going to share with us just a reflection for this week. And then we'll come and we'll do communion together.